You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 83, the Continental Congress in the winter of 1776. As I mentioned when I last focused on the Continental Congress, back in episode 75, Congress remained in continuous session after returning in September 1775. Some members would come and go, but since the congressional committees were effectively serving as both the legislative and executive branches, members had a lot of work to do. What I may not have made clear in earlier episodes was that everything Congress was doing was pretty much a secret. Congress did not meet in open sessions. From time to time, they might make some public pronouncement, such as mourning the death of General Montgomery in Canada, but no one outside of Congress really had a good idea of what they were doing. Like the country at large, though, most of Congress seemed to be moving toward acceptance of American independence. Thomas Paine's publication of Common Sense sped popular support for independence. Even so, more conservative patriots in Congress, like John Dickinson, John Jay, James Wilson, and others, refused to accept that independence would be the ultimate goal. James Wilson is not a founding father that you hear much about. He mostly comes up in trivia questions as one of only six men to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He would also become one of the first justices to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. However, he began his career as a Philadelphia lawyer. In 1774, during the First Continental Congress, Wilson had published a pamphlet with the exciting title of Considerations on the Nature and Extent of the Legislative Authority of the British Parliament. Even at the time, it was not exactly a bestseller and largely overshadowed by Thomas Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America. Now, I know when I mention these documents, you're immediately thinking, this sounds exciting. Where can I go to read these documents in their original full text? Well, of course, as always, I've created links on my blog to copies of the original text for your reading pleasure. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. So, while Wilson's pamphlet may not have been a bestseller with the public, the work did help establish him as a credible legal scholar in trying to protect colonial rights. In the First Continental Congress, Wilson was probably considered a moderate. By 1776, though, he was a conservative. Not because his views changed, but because the majority opinion had moved considerably to the left. Conservatives in 1774, by 1776, were considered Tories and enemies of freedom. Moderates in 1774 
were by this time the new conservatives. They were men like Wilson, who still supported fighting against taxation, but were not quite ready to call for independence. By 1776, though, everyone was reading Paine's common sense. They had already seen New England and Canada dive into all-out war, and they had heard the king's declaration that the colonies were in rebellion, making clear that he was not going to reign in Parliament and settle this thing peacefully. With the possibility of compromise pretty much vanished, the choice was becoming submission or independence. If you did not jump on the independence bandwagon, you were getting left behind. In early 1776, Wilson attempted to get on the bandwagon by drafting an address to the inhabitants of the colonies, which, again, I admit in the broad scheme of things is pretty forgettable. It ended with a line about how their second wish would be to continue with Britain, but their first wish was freedom. In other words, even the conservatives in Congress were reaching the conclusion that if they had to choose between independence and submission, they were willing to go with independence. Many of the conservatives thought this address would be helpful, but by the time it circulated through Congress, most thought that it did not go far enough. The independence faction was getting ready to push for an all-out call for independence. In the end, Congress tabled Wilson's address without a vote and moved on to other things. Even so, they still did not seem to be debating independence openly in Congress. The movement still only showed itself in private letters and personal conversations among the delegates. Some conservative delegates still hoped against hope that London would send a peace commission to negotiate a reasonable settlement to the crisis. This actually would eventually happen in 1778, but by that time it was too little too late. Instead, in 1775, Lord Drummond arrived in Philadelphia. Drummond was a Scottish noble who had settled in New Jersey a few years earlier. In 1774, he had traveled back to London to discuss possible peace overtures with Lord North. No one asked him to do it. He just appointed himself as a peace emissary to see if he could get the two sides talking toward some sort of compromise. Now, Drummond spoke with North about possible terms to end what was, at this time, still just tension between Britain and the colonies. Although he had no credentials to speak on behalf of anyone, he did have the most important thing in British government, family connections. Drummond was related to then-Secretary of State Dartmouth, who helped him connect to Dartmouth's stepbrother, Lord North. Much of what Drummond proposed ended up in the conciliatory proposition that Parliament sent to Congress in early 1775, which I first discussed back in episode 50 but North had been unwilling to provide any specific protections in that offer. That, and the fact that it reached Congress after Lexington and Concord, meant that it was too little too late. Lord Drummond did not give up, though. At the end of 1775, he returned to America in hopes of getting Congress to send peace commissioners to London. Almost immediately, the radicals arrested him for being a Tory they did parole him on the condition that he stay out of public affairs. Drummond violated that condition almost immediately by reaching out to some of the more conservative members of Congress, 
men like James Wilson, John Jay, and James Duane, to discuss the idea of peace terms where the colonies would get certain limited protections from internal taxation. His idea was that the colonies would provide some reasonable contribution toward the cost of their military protection, but would raise the money themselves however they liked, and would have some constitutional protection that London could not shake them down for unlimited cash whenever it wanted. Parliament would retain authority over trade, but would not use it as an excuse to raise cash through customs duties. Obviously, there were a lot of details left to resolve, but some conservative members of Congress thought it might be the only chance they had to work out a deal instead of continuing a highly destructive war. In the end, Lord Drummond did get a couple of delegates to travel up to New York covertly to get a better idea of whether this was really a genuine back-channel overture from North. Was North trying to negotiate a peaceful solution, or was this just some guy trying to make a name for himself, trying to broker a deal that nobody wanted? At the time, and as I discussed last week, General Clinton was on his way south, planning to retake the Carolinas. He met with Drummond and some other intermediaries on behalf of the delegates. General Clinton, though, was getting ready for war. He was not even authorized to negotiate any sort of peace settlement. Clinton suspected they simply wanted to know his war plans or delay his mission and blew them off. With that, the delegates returned to Philadelphia to get on with other matters. Dunmore, though, hopeful that the delegates would agree to go to London, sent a letter to General Howe in Boston asking for safe passage. He sent the letter to General Washington with the request that he forward it to Howe. Instead, Washington opened the letter, read it, and sent it back to Congress with a note that said he thought Dunmore was attempting to divide the Patriot effort and that someone there should do something about it. When Dunmore returned to Philadelphia, he was arrested for violating the terms of his parole. In March, Congress debated sending a delegation to London, but decided against it. Dunmore agreed to leave the colonies and finally was allowed to sail for Bermuda in April. In the end, nothing came of the attempted peace negotiations, although Drummond will be back for further attempts later in our story. In January and February of 76, Congress was focused on the prosecution of the war. The loss of the Northern Army on January 1st at Quebec was the first major defeat for the Patriots. It was hard to blame General Montgomery, who was now a national hero, after dying in battle. Similarly, now General Arnold, also wounded in battle and struggling to maintain the siege at Quebec, had hero status as well. Many in Congress, therefore, looked to blame General Schuyler, the commander of the Northern Army and in charge of overall strategy in that theater. Schuyler had been trying to support the Army in Canada, but was also focused on the Indian problem in New York. British Indian agent Guy Johnson was gathering up arms and ammunition and trying to convince the Iroquois and some neighboring tribes that perhaps they should stop being neutral and help the king put down this rebellion. Schuyler assembled 3,000 New York militia in January to make a show of strength against the Iroquois. At the same time, he met with Iroquois leaders to assure them that the militia were not there to attack them. 
Rather, they were just going to stop Johnson and the few foolish locals who had joined up with him. The effort worked. The militia captured a cache of arms and ammunition that Johnson had assembled and arrested about a hundred Scottish Highlanders who were prepared to fight for king and country. They dispersed anyone considering any organized effort against the Patriot movement. But all of this effort also meant that for a month following the loss in Quebec, Schuyler was not giving his full attention to the problems in Canada. In Montreal, General David Wooster got even more frustrated that his pleas for soldiers' guns and money were falling on deaf ears back in Albany. Wooster and Schuyler already did not like each other very much, but tried to be professional and work together as best they could. But when Wooster publicly criticized Schuyler for paroling some Tories, who were now causing Wooster trouble back in and around Montreal, Schuyler decided he had had enough. He dashed off a letter to Congress saying he would not work with Wooster anymore and that one of them had to go. Before that letter even reached Congress, however, the delegates had come to the same conclusion. One of them did have to go. Schuyler probably assumed that the junior Wooster would be the one that went. But the delegates decided that Schuyler would go. Well, not actually go. Congress instructed Schuyler to retain command of New York, but they gave command of Canada to General Charles Lee. As you may recall, Lee was third in command of the Continental Army, behind only Artemis Ward and Washington himself. Lee had been twiddling his thumbs in Cambridge and telling just about anyone who would listen how he could do a much better job than just about anyone anywhere. Giving him an independent command in Canada, Congress thought, would give Lee a chance to put up or shut up. The British looked like they would secure Canada within the next few months. Perhaps Lee could do a better job than Schuyler. Meanwhile, they sent Schuyler from Albany to New York City, where he could prepare for a possible British invasion there. Then, a few weeks later, Congress reversed themselves. Part of the reversal may have been objection raised by the New York delegation, who saw their general being treated unfairly. I think Washington himself also objected to these changes, though he seemed so polite and accommodating in his written correspondence that it's sometimes hard to tell. But Washington really wanted Lee in charge of New York City. He respected Lee's ability to set up defensive lines and was sure the British would attack there once they left Boston. So, in the end, Lee did go to New York City, and Schuyler stayed in Albany. However, he did not get Canada back under his command. Instead, Congress promoted Brigadier General John Thomas to Major General and sent him to command Canada. Thomas would replace General Wooster, who just about everyone seemed to dislike by this point. Wooster ended up returning to Connecticut and commanding the local militia there. All of this made very clear that Congress was not going to sit back and let Washington manage the army. Congress would direct what generals went where and maintain close control of the army. General Washington, determined not to become the next Cromwell, would make suggestions or express concerns, but he would always follow Congress's orders without complaint even if he had personal misgivings. To the extent delegates were looking at diplomacy, it was not with Britain. Rather, they wanted better relations with France. 
As I discussed back in episodes 71 and 75, France had already sent Bonvillard to feel out the idea of better relations between France and the colonies. Everyone understood that if they were going to defeat Britain militarily, they would need a major European power at least to supply them with guns, ammunition, and other supplies. Ideally, that other power would go to war with Britain directly and force London to focus on problems beyond the colonies. France, the age-old enemy of Britain, was certainly the most obvious choice in such a plan. To see if there was a possibility of making this happen, Congress sent its first envoy to Paris. Of course, it could not be an official envoy. The colonies were still governed by Britain and had no foreign policy authority of their own. If France recognized an envoy, it would be tantamount to recognizing American independence, which probably would force Britain to declare war on France. Instead, the envoy would go posing as a private merchant, looking to make deals to buy trade goods to sell to the Indians in America. Even that, of course, violated British trade laws, but I guess it was good enough cover to argue France was not getting directly involved in the war. Congress's choice for this first envoy was a delegate from Connecticut named Silas Dean. Dean had been an active member of Connecticut politics for years and had served as a delegate to the First and Second Continental Congress. By all appearances, he was a committed patriot, strongly supporting the attack on Ticonderoga in the spring of 1775 and playing a major role in the creation of the Continental Navy. He also performed a great deal of behind-the-scenes work on committees of correspondence. Sadly for Mr. Dean, he had made some enemies back in Connecticut when he supported Connecticut's Israel Putnam to become the first major general in the Continental Congress, rather than David Wooster, who, as we mentioned before, was also from Connecticut. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that Wooster was just a pain in the butt for just about everyone associated with him. He did have lots of political friends in Connecticut, but just about nothing else going for him. When Wooster only got offered a commission as a mere brigadier general in the Continental Army, he pouted and almost didn't take the job, preferring to remain a major general in the Connecticut militia. It probably would have been better for everyone if he had refused the commission but in the end he did take it and would prove to be a disaster for the next year before he finally had enough and quit. Anyway, Dean did not back Wooster, so Wooster's political friends had Dean recalled from Congress at the end of 1775. The delegates in Philadelphia valued Dean's work and did not want to lose him, so they decided he would be a good choice to send to Paris and feel out any possible chances of an alliance or at least assistance. Like just about anyone who got a significant appointment during the war, Dean seemed to be highly underqualified. He had never been further from his home in Connecticut than his visits to Philadelphia. He did not speak French and had no real diplomatic experience. Despite all that, on March 2, 1776, Congress commissioned Dean to go to France. The commission itself was rather vague, but Dean's quiet discussions with other delegates were more specific. They hoped he would be able to purchase, on credit, arms, supplies, and uniforms for a 25,000-man Continental Army. They gave him $200,000 in paper Continental currency 
to buy trade goods for Indians that Congress hoped to keep on their side during the war. They also hoped that he could make contact with the French foreign minister, the Comte de Vergennes, and begin discussions to see if France would recognize American independence, if they ever declared independence, and to see if they would consider trade agreements or even an alliance. Now, all of this was a risky venture. First, Dean had to cross the Atlantic Ocean and avoid the British Navy. He was engaged in treason, meaning the British could have hanged him if they caught him. Second, there was no guarantee the French might not decide it was to their advantage to stay on Britain's good side and just turn him over to the British. Even if none of that happened, Dean acted essentially as a private citizen in France with no diplomatic recognition. Anything he bought on credit was done with his personal credit, meaning that he could possibly lose everything he owned and get tossed into debtor's prison if Congress chose not to back his deals. Despite these risks, Dean took the job and actually did pretty well at it. He made contact with the French ministry through back channels, and for the second half of 1776, covertly sent a continual stream of supplies to America. This supply line grew considerably in 1777 and became critical to the war effort. I don't want to get into all the details now, but after several years, another envoy, Arthur Lee, accused Dean of mismanaging French aid and pocketing some for himself. Eventually, these charges were proven false, but not until long after Dean had died. Sadly, he suffered from this damaged reputation, even though he performed a critical service for his country. But that mess is years in the future. For now, Dean began his covert relationship between France and America that would make France America's oldest ally. And I will definitely circle back to Dean in future episodes. But while I'm discussing Congress, I should also mention that in February 1776, Congress authorized the printing of another $4 million in paper currency to finance the war effort. Everyone continued to question whether this money would ever be worth anything, leading to continued inflation. Next week, the Continental Navy set sail for the Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to this week's book, I just want to clear up a little confusion. For many months now, I've offered people the opportunity who want to support the podcast financially 
the ability to send me a PayPal donation. Recently, I've also added the ability to make donations via Patreon. Both options remain available. Uh, PayPal is usually best if you want to make a one-time donation. Patreon is more for people who want to make continuing monthly donations in small amounts and get more access to certain podcast extras. Also, wanted to remind people, if you ever shop at Amazon, and yeah, who doesn't, you can support this podcast with your everyday purchases. If you start by going to a book link from any of the books listed at the bottom of my blog episodes, blog.amrevpodcast.com, that will take you to the book on Amazon. But you don't have to buy the book. From there, if you search for, on Amazon for whatever you want to buy, the podcast still gets credit for bringing you to the site and we get a small commission on any of your purchases. So it's a great way to support the podcast without spending more money than you were going to anyway. Okay, so this week's episode, we see Congress slowly but surely moving toward independence. Even the more conservative members are beginning to accept that there is really no other option. It would still be many months before the cautious delegates would finally make the fateful decision, but things are definitely trending that way. We also saw that Congress is making its first tentative steps into the world of international diplomacy. Although Benjamin Franklin is probably the only delegate with anything close to diplomatic experience for his years of service as a colonial agent in Britain, he shows no interest in the job at this time. Remember, travel to Paris at a time when the British Navy controlled the seas was fraught with danger. I think the delegates may have thought it best to send someone a little more expendable as their first try. I will definitely try to get into more of Silas Dean's adventures in France in a future episode. Although he's kind of a forgotten founder today, he really was critical to getting France involved in supporting America. Also, I hope you notice that every time I do an episode about the Congress, I mention that they are once again printing more millions of dollars worth of continental currency. These mountains of paper money with nothing to back them up but promises from a Congress that, who knows, may not even exist in a few years, are going to cause monetary problems for everyone for years to come. Congress, however, has no choice and just keeps going. Following these actual deliberations of the Continental Congress is probably one of the least examined aspects of the Revolution. We're all kind of aware that the Continental Congress is sitting in Philadelphia and doing things, but outside of a few events like the Declaration of Independence, we really don't pay much attention to the many years of debate and governing that they did. So there are a few books that cover the Congress very well. I'm going to recommend one of them today, The Reluctant Rebels by Lynn Montrose. It covers the entire Continental Congress from 1774 until 1789, when the Constitution replaced it with the new U.S. Congress. The book itself is a little over 400 pages of text. Covering 15 years in that number of pages means that it provides a decent overview without plunging into too much minutiae. Uh, the book itself is rather old, first published in 1950. At that time, history books tended to be a little more patriotic than today focusing more on the positive aspects of the era rather than digging into the more unseemly details. So I think this book falls prey to that bias. 
but it's still a very good and accurate overview of the Continental Congress. The author, Mr. Montrose, was a World War I veteran who wrote for many newspapers and magazines and has also written a bunch of other books. He was not an academic, and he passed away in 1961. The book is well-researched and includes sources, but is not overly footnoted. I found the book a useful starting point to give an overview of what Congress was doing when. If you're interested in reading more about the Continental Congress generally, then you should give this book, The Reluctant Rebels, a try. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.